morning we're setting out on our great adventure through uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of the Bible, the, the one chapter of the Bible that we call Faith's Hall of Fame or uh, the Bible's Hall of Faith. And as we work through uh, this chapter, we're going to see examples from the lives of men and women about what it means to be a person of faith. I want to be a person of faith. Now, I want to live my life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And, uh, you know, how many of you, let me ask you this, how many of you uh, use YouTube as a personal tutor? All <laughs> right, You can admit it, it's all right. Like, for me, if there's something I don't know how to do nowadays, there's no question where I'm going first, right? YouTube it is, you know, type it in, somebody has made a video. To teach you how to do what you need to do. And one of the ways that I've benefited the most from YouTube over the years is as a musician. I can go to YouTube, and, and I'm not talking about tutorial videos here. I don't find those immensely helpful. Um, what I like to do is I like to go to the source. You know what I mean? Like if I want to learn how to sing something or learn how to play something in particular, like if I want to learn how to do something new on the guitar, I go to the source. I find the musician that I want to emulate. I watch them. Sometimes I slow the video down. Sometimes I pause the video. I'm watching the hands of the guitarist. I want to see how he moves his hands. I want to listen with my ears to what he's doing. And then I want to imitate what I see. Go to the source and imitate what you see. And, and really, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, we're, we're, we're being taught to imitate, to imitate what we're seeing. And the, uh, in a way, I think that, that we all should be imitators. You know what I mean? Like, you should be an imitator of, uh, of people who've gone on before you. And I know some people say, I'm not me. I'm my own person. I'm going to be me. I'm going to be unique. You're not going to be unique. You're going you're gonna to do things like everybody else has done before you. It's good to imitate people. I'm not saying try to be somebody else. I'm just saying the things that you see that are good, you should imitate them. The Bible tells us to imitate. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul said to the church, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Paul's saying to them, imitate. Look at our example. Imitate us. He says, we worked day and night to give you an example to imitate. We want you to do the things that we've done. I like this one passage in 3 John uh, verse eleven, chapter 1, verse 11. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever, now notice he says, whoever, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And, and what John's basically saying here is if you see an example worthy of imitation, if you see a good example, imitate that example. Imitate what you see. And, and Hebrews 11 is like that for us. In the life of a believer here, we have a look at all of these examples of faith that we should imitate, that we should strive to be like. We're going right to the source. We're looking at the examples of all these people that are mentioned in this chapter, people who walked the walk and talked the talk. And we're supposed to imitate them, imitate what we see. Now, now, before I go any further, before we talk about imitating the faith 
of these folks in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to remind you of the definitions of faith that I gave you in the previous week. I gave you two definitions of faith. I'm going to help you out. They're going to be up on the screen today. If you haven't copied them down, now's your chance to to copy them down, not just have to follow along with me. But first is the the general definition of faith. Guys, can you put up the first thing on the screen, the the general definition of faith? This was up last week. Faith is the confident assurance that what God says is true and the settled conviction that all God's promises will be fulfilled. That's a definition of faith. It's the confident assurance that what God says is true and the settled conviction that all God's promises will be fulfilled. It comes right from Hebrews 11, verse 1, where the writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's our general definition of faith. But then I gave you a couple weeks ago, I gave you a definition of living faith. Listen to this definition. We're going to use these both throughout this series but a definition of living faith, and that's this. Faith is trusting what God says and acting on it regardless of circumstances or consequences. Here it again. Faith is, flip to the next slide for me, Aaron. Faith is trusting what God says and acting on it regardless of circumstances or consequences. Do you live your life that way? Do you trust what God says And do you act on what God says, regardless of the circumstances or consequences you find yourself in? That's living faith. That's what we're going to see play out in this chapter. In chapter 11, the first example of that type of faith in chapter 11 is Abel. We all know the the story of Cain and Abel. I think so, right? I don't have to rehash all of it right now, do I? We're We're going to talk about it, but Cain and Abel. And Abel's the first example of faith. Now, when we think of Abel, I don't think we typically think of a person who's an example for us. I think when we think of Abel, we typically just think of a murder victim, somebody who was unjustly killed by his brothers. When we think of him, uh, we don't think of him as this great example of faith that we're supposed to follow. But Hebrews 11 gives us Abel as the very first example of faith, the the very first on the list of faith's hall of fame. Look at verse 4. Hebrews 11, verse 4. He says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, now take your Bible and stay in Hebrews 4 with your finger or ribbon or whatever and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Stay in Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, and turn to Genesis chapter 4. Because I do want us to go back to the beginning, and I do want us to really understand all of what happened in Genesis so that we can see what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he mentions Abel as an example of faith for us. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 5 in just a moment. You know the setting here. God has created the the earth, the universe. All that's been created has been created by God, and He created as the high point, the climactic moment of His creation. He created the first man and the first woman in the image of God. And Before very long, they fell under the temptation of Satan, and they sinned. They rebelled against God, and they were cursed, and they were driven out of the Garden of Eden. And the whole entire creation comes under a curse. Now, let me say this to you real quick. 
We live in the 21st century, the 21st century A.D., and then we have thousands and thousands and thousands of years even before that. And we get this idea as we look at the world around us that we have been on this sort of linear progression of, of sin and downgrade in the world. What we think is, you know, it, it's just been getting worse and it's been getting worse and it's been getting worse and it's been getting worse. But I want to tell you something. Genesis chapter 4 reminds us that it hasn't just been getting worse. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. The effects of sin are immediately seen in Genesis chapter 4. Horrible effects of sin. It doesn't take thousands of years for it to get as bad as it could be. It was as bad as it could be the moment sin entered the world. Sin's serious business. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Let's listen to this again. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face, his face fell. Now, before, before we go any further, uh, I want to tell you why, right from the outset. Before I get any further in the message, I want to tell you why Abel is included in this great list of people of faith. And Abel is included. In fact, I, he, he's there at the very beginning because his story teaches us about the way God looks at us in our faith. And his story teaches us that, that God sees what's truly in our hearts. Listen to what I'm saying here again. Abel's in this list as an example of faith, teaching us the truth that God sees clearly what's in our hearts. He sees it. Faith, faith is, a, is a matter that begins in the heart, doesn't it? It begins in, inside. It begins in your heart. It doesn't end there. Faith works itself out. We'll see that in, in Hebrews 11 through all these examples. Faith works itself out in a myriad of different ways, in all sorts of different ways. But it always begins in the heart and enables a reminder that God sees our heart before he has regard for our actions. So I've told you the main point right off the bat. Now let me unpack it for you. Let's look at Abel's story from Genesis a little bit, a little bit closer. And, and I have to point out that we can't talk about Abel without talking about Cain. So we're really looking at the story of them both. And, and look at verses 1 and 2 there. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And then there's the key that I want you to look at. We're going to unpack this piece by piece. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So right away, we have two important facts about Cain and Abel. Two important facts. We see right away that they were drawn to different occupations. They had different ways of working. Abel was a shepherd. Cain 
was a farmer. Both of them had their own sort of uh, their their own their own sort of unique identities. They had two different occupations. Now look at verse three. This is important. Look at verse three. Verse three begins with these words: "In the course of time." Stop right there for a second. All this I hope will make sense to you. Man, this is important. In the course of time, a more literal rendering of the Hebrew here would be at the end of days. And and the point here, or what's being said here is that there was a a certain time and a certain appointed time for them to go and make offerings to the Lord. They had learned that that they didn't just take offerings any time they wanted to. They, They didn't just take anything they wanted to. There was some prescribed way that they were meant to worship God. And both of them were going through those motions, through those prescribed motions and worshiping God. They certainly had been taught by their parents, Adam and Eve, how to worship God. And so they're, they're both doing that. They're both making offerings to God. Verse 3 says, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And in verse 4, we see that Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So they, they both brought their offerings at the right time. They, they both brought their offerings. They came from a result of their work. They both brought offerings that were part of what they possessed. So far, so good, right? But here's the the strange thing, or the thing that that causes us to to pause, is that it says that God accepted Abel in his sacrifice, and he rejected Cain in his sacrifice. Why? That's the big question. Why did he accept one, and reject one. There's a sense in which they had both done the right things. They'd done it at the right time. They brought up their own possessions. They brought things to the Lord. Why did God accept Abel and reject Cain? Now, let me, let me give you a couple of possibilities, a couple of possible answers. First of all, this is one that you've probably heard. Some people will say, well, it's clear that, that God accepted Abel's sacrifice because Abel brought an animal sacrifice. And I'll say, well, the animal sacrifice, of course, was a, 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 a forerunner to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. We know that from the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, that all of the animals that were slaughtered under the, the, the law of Moses, all of those under the Old Covenant, were all pointing forward to Christ. That's what they were there for. The shedding of their blood was prefiguring the shedding of the blood of Jesus. And so some people said, well... He rejected Cain because Cain didn't bring the right kind of sacrifice. He brought uh, a grain sacrifice or fruit and vegetables, maybe. Whatever he brought, he didn't bring the right kind of sacrifice. To which I would say, there's no evidence whatsoever in the Bible anywhere that that's true. It does not say that. It doesn't say, in fact, I think it says quite the opposite. We'll get there in a minute. So I don't think that that's what it's about. He didn't reject him because he brought the wrong sacrifice. Another possibility, and this is very subtle kind of thing that's, that's happening in the text. Another possibility is that, uh, that, that, that Cain sacrifice, he brought the sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice, and the, way, the, the grain would have been acceptable to the Lord. He did it at the right time, but that he was indifferent about it. And I'll spare you the word study that gets us there, but there's a little hint in the Hebrew that, that the way Cain brought his offering, he was just indifferent about it. He was just going through the motions. 
But it says that Abel, there's more to Abel's sacrifice, right? He brought the, the best. He brought the, the firstborn. He brought the fat portions. He brought the best to the Lord. So Abel came with a, with a heart wanting to give the best to the Lord. Cain was indifferent. And I think that gets us closer to the reason that God accepted Abel and rejected Cain. Now I want you to look at verse 4 and 5 again. Let's look at them carefully. Listen to it carefully. Verse 4, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. Now notice here that the focus is on the person before the offering. You see that? God had regard for the person before the offering. It doesn't say that, 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 that if, if Abel brought the right kind of offering, we would expect that the Bible would say, and the Lord had regard for the offering that Abel brought. That's not what it says. It says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And this gets us to the heart of the matter. Why did God accept Abel? Why did God accept Abel? It didn't have anything to do with the sacrifice. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and look at it. The answer is right there. Plain English. Verse 4. Why does God accept Abel? Why? You say it. By faith, because he had faith. It's by faith. Faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By his faith, the, the sacrifice was more acceptable. Through which, through which what? Through his faith, he was commended as righteous. How do we know that the through which doesn't mean through the sacrifice? Well, because earlier in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews said that the just, the righteous, live by faith. That's how we are justified by God. That's how we're made righteous by God. God commended him and accepted his gifts. So here's our answer. God accepted Abel because Abel approached God with a heart filled with faith. His heart was filled with faith. The offering was secondary. God was looking at the inward condition of Abel's heart, not the outward offering that he brought. You know, you can do a lot of things. You give a lot of offerings to the Lord. You can tithe your socks off. You know it's possible for you to do that and, and more, and God look at you and not accept you? Listen to what the, the great reformer uh, John Calvin said about this. He said, The writer shows us that however excellent were the works of the saints, they derived their value, their worth, and whatever excellence they had from faith. God had respect for Abel and his gifts, from which we may readily conclude that his sacrifice pleased God because he himself was pleasing to God. Where did his pleasing come from other than he had a heart purified with faith? We know that's true. If you please God, you only please him for one reason. Not because of the offering you bring. Not because of the things you do. Look at verse 6. Hebrews 11 verse 6. 
What does it say? And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Abel came with a heart of faith. Now, let me, let me give you a, a couple points of application. First, I've said this already, but let me say it more directly. God sees the reality of your heart. I mean, just, I want you to let that settle in for a second. God sees the reality of your heart. Before God looked at the offerings of Abel and Cain, He first glimpsed into their hearts. He sees the reality of your hearts. This makes me think of when David was anointed as king of Israel. You know this story? This is such a great story that that helps us to understand this, this idea that God is interested in our hearts first. Do you know this story? So Samuel has been sent to anoint the next king of Israel. God has rejected the first king of Israel. And now he's going to raise up his own king. And so he's told, he's told to go to the house of Jesse, go to Bethlehem, go to the house of Jesse. And there, amongst the sons of Jesse, he'll find the next king of Israel. He goes, he arrives, gathers up the family. They're all together. And it says that, 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 that uh, he looked at the first son of Jesse and says this. In his heart, he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. You know why I said that? Because he was a big fella, strong, strapping, handsome. There's no one like him. It must be him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He looks at your heart. God knows your heart. Let me say, say something to you. I want you to really listen. Listen to what I'm about to say. Are you listening? This is so important. I'm not trying to be funny or cute. I just, listen, I want you to hear this. You cannot fool God. You can't pull the wool over the eyes of God. You can't fake it with God. Listen, you can fool me. You can fool me. I've been fooled. In the the life of of the church, there have been times where I've been fooled, where I've looked like a complete idiot being fooled by people. In my first church, we had an entire family that came into our church and just conned us all. Professional con artist. I mean, this is a true story. I could give you details. You wouldn't even believe how, how deep their con went. It was an entire family. It was a husband, a wife, and their, their, their son. They conned us good. I baptized all of them. We celebrated their baptisms. I used to go to their house and, and uh, sit with them and pray with them. She used to come to our house and watch our kids. Con artist, through and through. Fooled me. Fooled Denise. Fooled our church. You know who she didn't fool? She didn't fool God. God's not surprised by that. 
Look, you, you might be here today. You might be fooling the people around you. You might be fooling me. You're not fooling God. You're not going to fool God. You can't fool. If your heart is hardened towards God or towards people, God knows it. No matter what you're doing on the outside, he, He's aware of it. You haven't fooled Him. Let me get to uh, the, the second thing I want you to hear. As we look at this and just pull some application out of this idea that, that God is interested in our heart first, I want you to hear this. This is so important. Religion is no substitute for faith. Your religion is no substitute for faith. Remember when I, I, I spent a few moments focusing on uh, Genesis 4, 3 that says Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices in the course of time or their offerings in the course of time. And I said that that, that language suggests that there was a, a time and a place. There was a certain, uh, there was a certain cultic practice even at that point where they were meant to do things a certain way and at a certain time, all that. That is religion. It's not bad in and of itself. Religion is not a bad thing, but understand what religion is. Religion, by definition, by, by definition, here's the actual definition of religion. Religion is a particular system of faith and worship. It's just religion. You can be, you can be absolutely, completely lost and be religious. You can be steaming full throttle on your way to hell and be religious. In fact, one of my old pastors, I'll never forget him saying this. i never forget it. Maybe it's because of the way he said it. Uh, but, but he said from the pulpit one Sunday, he said, there are plenty of religious people who will knock the bottom out of hell when they die. You, your religion is no substitute for real faith. I mean, Cain was religious. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have even gone. He was religious. He, 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 he went and he did the right things at the right times. You know, if Cain was a part of this church, you know what he'd do? He'd show up on Sunday morning. He'd give when the offering plate came around. He'd sing the songs. He'd, he'd probably serve in some way. He'd be religious. He'd go through the religious motions. And yet, in his heart being far from God, he'd still be rejected by God. Abel was accepted because of his faith, not his religion. God's not interested in our religion. He's interested in our heart. Real quick, hold your place there real quick. Go to Psalm 51. One of the great Psalms. It's important to know the occasion of the Psalms if you can. Some of them are known, some of them are not known. This one is known. This Psalm comes after one of the most tragic events in the entire Bible. Perhaps one of the most tragic events, moral failures, one of the most tragic moral failures ever in the history of the world. David, the king after God's own heart, had seen a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, 
had called on her, a married woman, had committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. And instead of at that point admitting his fault and confessing his sins, what did he do next? He murdered her husband. And then he took her as his own wife. And then the prophet comes to, to David and tells him a story about a rich man who had all that he could ever need, all that he could ever want. He had all the sheep that he ever needed. And there was a poor man who had a sheep, one sheep, one sheep. And he loved that sheep almost like a child. And when it came time for the feast, the rich king, instead of taking from his abundance, did what? He took the sheep from the poor man. And David was incensed by it. Tell me who this man is so that there can be justice. And Nathan, as any man of God should, told the truth. And he said, the man is you. And David was heartbroken. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer when Nathan confronted him. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. Do you know your transgressions? I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth where? In the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And for those who say the Holy Spirit wasn't around in the Old Testament, he says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And here it is. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Let's just stop there for a second. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if I could make this right by just doing something religious, I would do it. But it won't matter because you won't accept that. Your delight is not in my religion. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He says, God, you don't want my religion. You want my heart. You're not interested in me going through the motions. You want my heart. God wants your heart. He's not interested in your religion. We could go to the book of Malachi. Let's go to the book of Malachi. I'll just preach till I feel like it. Let's go to the book of Malachi. He's right there at the end of the Old Testament. If you don't know where it's at, it's easy to find. Malachi chapter 2. Now Malachi, God is condemning the priest for the way they've treated him in worship. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Stop there and let me explain The priest had been bringing God sacrifices that were not acceptable, bringing lame animals, bringing not the best. They were going through the motions. They were going to the temple in their service. They were leaning over to one another when nobody could hear, and they were saying, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of this. Just day after day doing the same things. They're going through the motions, and God is now condemning them. Now, from the outside... If you were at the temple, you would have looked at the priest and you would have thought, look at the priest go. Look at what they're doing, how they serve the Lord. Oh, that I serve the Lord the way they serve the Lord. They give sacrifices. They do all the right things. They they come and they worship every day. They're doing exactly what the Lord says to them. But the Lord is rejecting them. Verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Your heart is messed up. So I will not accept your worship. I will not accept your sacrifices. He says in verse 3, one of the most extreme Statements in the entire Bible. He says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. And in case you don't know what that means, I will rebuke your offspring and I will spread feces on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. If you dishonor me in your heart, I won't accept anything from your hand. And even then, if you continue to do it, you'll suffer the consequences that I will will lay out for you. Do not play around with religion and think you're right with God. If you're here, I'm going to make a bold statement. If you're here and you're just playing around, you're just playing church, it'd probably be better for you not to be here. In the judgment, if you're not willing to get your heart right with God, stop playing around with God. It'll probably be worse for you in the judgment. Don't play around with God. One of the most vile people I've ever known in the life of a church is still playing around with God. 
one of the most vile, nasty, disgusting human beings I've ever known was a deacon at my last church. He sang in the choir at, at that church. He served on committees in that church. He did whatever he could do and showed up whenever the doors were open. Let me tell you something. God's not fooled. He's not fooled. God doesn't want our religion. He wants our hearts. He wants your heart. Can, can y'all bear with me for a couple more minutes? Just a couple more. All right. I have to say this. I tagged this on in my notes. Because religion, empty religion, is deadly dangerous. And some of you are tortured by religion. Here's what I mean. Some of you are tortured by religion, by the outward expressions of faith, because you hear people say things like, or you may just assume, because of our Western culture, our brand of religion, you know, we hear people say things like, you know, if you don't, if you don't read your Bible every day, you're probably not a Christian. Says who? I mean, what if you lived from 400 A.D. to the Reformation? Are you telling me there were no Christians? Because nobody had a Bible for a thousand years. How about uh, you don't pray three times a day? You probably don't love Jesus. Says who? Look at these crazy ideas. If you don't have a dedicated devotional time in the morning before you get gone. You know when my devotional time happens? When I'm of clear mind and heart. I'm telling you, if I got up in the morning, I need a couple hours, folks. I'm telling you. I need my mind to be clear. I need to get past some things in my day. And then I'm going to spend some good time with the Lord. You know, but, but don't be caught up in this trap of, you know, if you don't do this, you don't love Jesus. If you don't do that, you don't love Jesus. If you don't do this, you're not saved. That's not true. That's not true. Hebrews 11.6 does not say uh, that, that without reading your Bible, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say without praying, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say that. It says without what? Faith. He wants your hearts. He's interested in your heart. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. I think I did this last week. Let me do it again. If, if, if He says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him, then how do you please Him? With faith. Don't be like Cain. Cain did the things Abel did, but he had no faith in his heart. Abel pleased God, not by what he did outwardly, but because he had faith in his heart. Let me remind you of those definitions of faith. Faith is the confident assurance that what God says is true and the settled conviction that all God's promises will be fulfilled. 
Are you a person of faith?